I'm Jimmy Alexander, and welcome to Out with Jimmy. It's the podcast where members of the LGBTQ community share their coming out stories with you. If you're going to Apple Podcasts, make sure you click subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And while you're there, give us a little review and as many stars as you possibly can. Follow us on social media, Out with Jimmy. And if you'd like to share your story, go to outwithjimmy.com. Now, today, one of my favorite people, she's my cousin, is on. <laughs> That's because Sheila Alexander Reed is Out with Jimmy. I am Sheila Alexander Reed. I live in the Crestwood neighborhood, which is Northwest Washington, D.C. And I'm director of the mayor's office of LGBTQ affairs. And I identify as a card carrying lesbian. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. And you showed me that card. Thank you. I have to tell you, uh, Sheila, that you are one of my favorite people. Oh, thank you. Uh, There's a picture of me, you and the mayor in my home. Um, that were from the high heel races and a couple of things that you've done for me in my life that I don't think you realize how important they are to me mm-hmm. is you, uh, allow me to host the high heel races or be the MC. Mm-hmm. It means the world to me. And then, uh, and, uh, I was involved with something at the museum, um, for their exhibit for 50 years of pride rise up the stonewall exhibit. And um, the museum reached out to me when I worked at a radio station here in town and asked if I would want to come up with a, a promotion. And my idea was the Family Pride Day because so many I was in so so much fear of coming out on the air. And when I did, um, instead of parents being upset, I heard from parents saying my kid is gay, lesbian, trans. And how much it meant to them that I was talking as a gay man sharing my life on the air mm. and normalizing it that it was – like their lives. Mm-hmm. And it meant something to their kids, which meant something to me. And so my idea was to do a family pride day where kids got into the museum for free. And I wanted to have like a little conference there. And you were gracious enough to not only um, be a part of it and be on the panel, but you also, uh, with Mayor Bowser, helped us make it um, family pride day in Washington, D.C. that day. And, oh, yeah. And forever – I will be in gratitude of you for that. No problem. So it, was, thank you. it was a pleasure. Thank you for everything you do in the community. Um, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but just during your time in the mayor's office was not the beginning of you being a trailblazer. I don't mind you saying that. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's start in the beginning because normally I always, this is the first question I ask. Who was the first person you looked at and admitted to that you were gay? I probably think that that was probably the woman that I was attracted to. And how old were you? Around 26. I was considered, a, I'm considered a late bloomer. I was out at 35. Yeah, I got so you about 10 later, years. You have a later, but yeah. I was blooming in other ways. I tell you what, um, it, it, some people knew the truth, but others, uh, most people did not. Same here. My yeah. parents, uh, my mother said that she knew. She said my grandfather, who's no longer alive, knew. But nobody told me. You know, I've been a tomboy ever since I came out of the womb. And had very close relationships with female friends, best friends, roommates, co-workers. But um, I didn't quite understand uh, what what was friendship versus what was a crush. And to this day, I'm not sure which of those relationships were which. But I know that I've had a series of very close relationships with women and um, I always felt different from most of my other friends, and I didn't know what to call it until very late in life. When you admitted to that young lady that you were a lesbian, how tough was that to say it out loud? It wasn't very hard because 
I was asking her to sort of um, school me or guide me mm-hmm. on what it was like to be a lesbian. What do lesbians do? I all well, I she do, was a lesbian. She was a lesbian. Okay, and, and she out. Was, okay, she was an out lesbian. Okay. and um, and uh, and work with me. And so I I knew that she was a lesbian. I knew that she could answer all of my questions, and uh, and I knew that she liked me as well. That helps. That helps. So it, it, it was really an easy sort of conversation right then. Once I broke that ice to myself, that was the hardest coming out was to myself. I had been trying to um, understand why I wasn't attracted to these very nice men that I, you know, dated or were friends with or liked me. I went through um, four years of an all girls high school, four years of an all girls college, and so not knowing at all that I was a lesbian. So I consider those... You missed so some like, prime the wonder, opportunity. The wonder years. Like, I was wondering what I was doing. But um, You missed some prime day exactly. years there, Sheila. So it was only after that that I um, I just happened to be driving up 16th Street one day and just happened to be looking out of my car window, and, I, and um, there was a woman at a bus stop, and her eyes sort of caught my eyes. And usually when you look at somebody, you just look, and you're like, you know, yeah. you nod or you gaze away. She sort of um, kept looking right back at me almost staring me down and I got goosebumps and I didn't understand that I was like oh my gosh and so about two blocks later and this was between Arkansas and Columbia Road on 16th Street on an 8 to 12 block radius and I said you know what Sheila you like women what the hell you're attracted to women because I had never had that feeling before um, or I never connected the dots before and so at that point um I told my coworker, and it also explained you know, sort of like why I was spending so much time with her. Apparently, I liked her and thought we were just, you know, very close. And and then it was, became a series. You don't come out just once. First yeah. of all, it's a series of coming out. It's I, like moving the refrigerator. Exactly. You don't push it over in the first yeah. rocket back and forth. Or you, don't, or, or you don't particularly like where it is at first, so you keep adjusting. <laughs> and so I, uh, I told my uh, siblings, who I'm very close to, yeah. I have three siblings, and then I told um, my roommate, uh, I have a, a male roommate at the time, and I wanted him to know because I might be bringing some female guests home. And I also then told my closest friends and coworkers. So, it, it, and once I got their support, the rest didn't really matter because I really want to make sure that I did not lose the love of my um, support network. And I was really most afraid of telling my parents, quite frankly. And how did you tell your parents? Well, I took my mother out to lunch at White Flint. Remember, I was 26 mm-hmm. years old. I wasn't a kid. We went out to lunch at White Flint, and I handed her a letter because I was so afraid to actually talk and use the words. I had written a letter, and um, well, it's a very interesting story. My mother's mother um, was sort of an independent spirit, and um, and she died when my mother was 16, but I, I sort of invoked um, her mother's name and said, um, I think that I am much like your mother. I'm independent spirit. Um, I have sort of like a, a need to go out, to color outside the lines. And I'm not, you know, uh, ashamed or afraid to be different. And in doing so, I need to tell you something that is core to my being. Um, I know you've seen me have best friends come around to the family affairs. Um, some of those best friends were girlfriends, and I'm a lesbian, and I realize that now. And really, the reason I'm telling you is because most recently 
um, one of those um, girlfriends broke my heart. Mm. And I really need your love and support. I'm hurting, and I can't get the love and support that I need unless I come clean and tell you. And you needed your mom. And I needed my mom. She read that letter, and it was the longest maybe three to five minutes of my life just waiting to see how she was going to react. I handed it to her. I said, I have something to tell you. Read this. And that letter said all that. And so afterwards, she put the letter down. She said, I've known that all your life. What's the big deal? Your grandfather told me that Sheila is one um, daughter who's never going to give you grandkids. And he said that when you were little. I was like, well, why didn't you want to tell me? Why didn't you tell me? How am I the last to know I'm a lesbian? Exactly. So you, so many people I've talked to, they describe this. Mm-hmm. They tell somebody, they tell the person they love and their, their mother or their father, and that weight is lifted. The, the heavy uh, bags they're carrying are gone. Did you feel that feeling? Sure. So between the time that I admitted it to me and the time I came out to my mother, there was about two or three years difference. Mm-hmm. Let me be clear. So I told my girlfriend, and um, she proceeded to teach me how to be a lesbian. Yeah. And then two or three relationships later, when, when my heart was broken, that's when I came out to my mother. So um, by the time I did come out, I was uh, adamant. It wasn't mm. a phase. And um, I felt like even if I lost her love, that would be heartbreaking, but it wasn't going to change who I was. So I, I, I just forged ahead. I told my father shortly thereafter, and that was even scarier because – my father was a big gregarious man who was um, who was not shy about telling you his feelings either way. Mm-hmm. And so um, he also was a government, a federal. He was a federal uh, government employee, but he was a government employee nonetheless. And um, I told him face to face, and waited again. That silence that seemed like it took forever. And he just said, "I just want to make sure that you're with somebody who loves and respects you and doesn't hurt you." And I could not believe it. I could not believe it because he's very Catholic, very religious, and I just knew that he was going to, you know, invoke some quote from the Bible and, you know, uh, say that I was damned to go to hell, but he did not. And so I, uh, my advice is if you feel it to your core and that it's um, sort of killing you not to come out, because you can't tell everybody to come out. You have to come out when you're comfortable yeah. and, and, and minimize the risk. But if that is core to your being— and you're sort of dying inside by not coming out, please come out because um, the risk, I'm just saying the benefits for me outweigh the risk. And you don't, and I didn't know that until after I came out, but for so many years, those sort of years between when I knew and I told uh, my family and friends, it was, it was very hard because imagine being in a closet and this was, uh, I'm going to say eighties, nineties, and um, homophobia, discrimination was rampant. There were no protections. Um, all you heard was gay bashing from the pulpit and, or even um, anywhere you went. When I used to go to the barbershop to get my hair cut, um, I heard a lot of uh, negativity about um, effeminate men mm-hmm. or um, or what they considered sort of like boyish girls. You know, all of these sort of um, societal, society accepts a lot of a bigotry and hatred and um, prejudice at the time. And they, they do to this day uh, again, unfortunately, but at the time there were no protections. Yeah. And so it did not serve me well to come out until I felt that I was safe to come out. And so that's my message when I talk to other people is 
if it's if it's core to who you are and it's safe, by all means, please come out. You, you said so much there that I want to go back to. Um, I don't even remember what your question no, was. No, no, no. Um, neither do I, Sheila. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but no, you said so many beautiful things. The the thought you're that's I've talked to so many people, and you know, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, said that his dad told him when he found out he was gay, he goes, "I love you, but you need to know you're going to hell." Mm. And mm. and mm. then the, and the, and there's happy ending with that, where the father accepted not only him but went with them on a cruise, so he and his husband now husband could get married, and he calls his husband his son. And it maybe is because you were older at the time, but I tell. People, when they come out, I'm like, you know, give your parents a second because it took you three years to come to grips with who you are. You got to give your parents more than 10 minutes. And with your parents, they're almost waiting for you to tell them, like waiting for you to realize it. Exactly. So and you also brought up um, and I don't know if you realize this, but you were talking about at the time with the bigotry and how you just wouldn't come out there because there were no advocates. There are no advocates and, and there were no safety nets and you, or resources. And you are one of those advocates now in the D, in Washington, D.C. And if, I don't know if you realize that you're one of the reasons why people can come out now. You're helping people. so I do realize that. I thought about that um, on National Coming Out Day a few days ago. I wrote a little piece about it, how when I came out, there were no resources, no social media, no Internet to look things up. And I really didn't have a, a, a map or some some sort of um, pre-laid um, existing um, sort of chart. So I had to chart my way with just the help of friends and family. And it's ironic, or maybe not, that I have um, now come to the place where, as director of Mayor's Office of LGBTQ Affairs, that it, my job is to support the LGBTQ community in all aspects of it, including coming out. But along the way, I started an LGB, uh, a lesbian uh, nonprofit for black lesbians. I started a for-profit for black lesbians. I founded a radio show for the LGBTQ community on WPFW. Mm-hmm. So I, I, was being, I was this sort of advocate in my spare time. But to be um, paid to do this work that I'm passionate about anyway, yes. it's just a blessing. And I think that... Uh, because I did come out and did not have all the resources or uh, sort of a roadmap of what to do, I think that that um, enables me to have a lot more compassion and put that into the work that I do to help others. When you started your path to being an advocate, um, and because I, I think about for myself, because for such a long time I was hidden and I was scared because mm-hmm. I had such a public job. When did, when did you come out? I came out, I was outed. Because I had a girlfriend at work, and then there, she had went out of town, and the guy at work came to my house, and he told everybody. Let me tell you, the worst news you can ever hear from your girlfriend is, uh, why can Stephen describe your body? That's never a good question <laughs> to be asked. Uh, that, wow. like, that's That's a hell of a coming out story. Yeah, that, that, well, it was ugly. But um, but I, I describe it as the worst moment of my life led me to the happiest moments of my life, the happiest point. where you point. are now, I'm with there, the coming out yes, show. Yes, you know, absolutely. And I, I God has graced me. Um Tremendously. But is it harder? Do you think it's harder in the African-American community than it is in the Latino community or Asian community? Or is there? That's a great question. I used to think that, yes, it was. And um, and would argue, you know, very uh, uh, sort of uh, adamantly about it. But 
now in this position I'm in now and having to deal with different um, youth from different backgrounds, um, I think it's not so much a um, a racial thing, but a socioeconomic thing. Because you can, I, I was sort of considered middle class, maybe upper middle class, depending on who you talk to. I, it's funny that you tell that little story about uh, how you were um, in North Carolina. I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland. We are the only, well, one of the few black families in Bethesda in the 70s when we moved there from Ohio. There were more white people in Bethesda in the 70s at a Willie Nelson concert. There were, it was yes. very lily white very Bethesda. So we stood out. I was the only black girl in my class. I was the only, and in grade school, I was the only black girl in my class in high school in Rockville, Maryland at the time. So, um, so I was used to being different. But I didn't understand that um, being different as far as being attracted to people mm-hmm. was also um, part of part of uh, who I was. So I just thought it was because of everything else. I, I'm, I'm always going to feel different because um, I'm always sort of like the only one. And when I uh, was the only one attracted to um, some of my female classmates, maybe I just thought it was part of a phase or something I was going through. But um Having gone through all that and in a in a, in a black family that is deeply um, religious, you know, my mother converted to Catholicism when she married my father, and we went to church each and every Sunday, whether we wanted to mm. or not. <laughs> and so that um, and 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 you can imagine in the church the the amount of gay bashing that that went on, and sometimes even when I came um, got out of my parents' house and and became an adult. And went to some other churches with other friends just because I wanted to um, experience other religions. The the level of um, um, hostility coming from the pulpit was palatable. It was it was it was um, it was scary. And so I understand why um, black people may think that you know they're they're going to get it. They're getting it harder because of the whole religious piece. But I can tell you that the Latinx community is just as religious. And sometimes the white community is just as religious. Sometimes the Asian Pacific Islander community is just as religious. So I think that um, if you're on the socioeconomic uh, spectrum and you're towards the end of it, yes, you have much more to risk, right? Um, if you think about um, Caitlyn Jenner mm-hmm. um, transitioning, that was, that was a rich man becoming a rich woman. Mm-hmm. So um, the risk there. Is, is is minimal and and somebody with fame that that most people can't fathom in money and resources that you can't even imagine exactly. So what I'm saying, even if you're talking about Ellen DeGeneres coming out again, um, when you're rich, you may risk losing some fans, but you still got uh, uh, some money in the bank. Mm-hmm. You're not going to go broke. But if you're talking about a, a transgender woman of color um, transitioning um, with no resources and no support network. It's a whole different story. Or it could be a Latinx woman of color or a, or an Asian Pacific Islander man. It just depends on uh, how you are on the socioeconomic spectrum. Can you afford to lose your job? Can you afford to, you, to lose your family's love and support and your friend's love and support? So these are the things that people weigh very heavily when they decide to come out or when they decide to transition. You get your heart broken. And did you what did you ever think that you would get married that that would be a um no a choice no, I didn't even think marriage equality was possible, even though I was fighting for it. 
So let me go back to another question about do you think it's harder um, to come out um, in the um, black community? While it is not harder, I will say that the in- intersectionality makes it um, makes it very difficult. So you're you're discriminated against. Just take me for example, because I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. I'm discriminated against on top of that because I'm black or a, not white, if you look at it that way. And then on top of that, I'm going to be discriminated against because I'm an out lesbian. So intersectionality is is such that you are discriminated against one on top of the other. So you push further and further down. You're like so, the hat trick of, exactly, uh, yeah. Exactly. So it's a, it's a sort of triple threat, if you will. So that makes it much harder for me to be successful. So that, if you're asking about that, yes, it is going to be harder. Um, just because racism exists, patriarchy exists, homophobia, transphobia all exists. Um, now, back to your other question. Um, what was it? About marriage. <laughs> marriage. B- because when I was a kid... And I graduated in the early 90s from high school. Mm-hmm. And I hidden, so I was so far in the closet. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying I wasn't having fun, but I was in the closet. Um, and I'd never dreamed of taking a guy to the prom. Like, no. No, nope. that was would, not even. That'd be, like, all, that'd be like saying I'm going to fly. I'm going to fly yeah. with a cape. Well, first of all, I wasn't even out when I was going to the prom. I went to the prom. I had to find somebody to go to the prom with. I had to find in my in my thought. I had to find a black man and find a black man in Bethesda again. Mm. Was like finding a unicorn, <laughs> and um, and so it, yeah. it was hard. But uh, fast forward to marriage equality. You know, I was um, uh, I was involved in the fight for civil unions, domestic partnerships, and ultimately, which led to marriage how equality. Were you, how were you? How was well, I? how was you, how were you involved? I was. Um, I was a vice president of the Gertrude Stein Democratic Club, which was um, at the forefront of the fight, along with um, David Catania of the city council. Uh, we are the ones um, who were fighting um, to get this law passed in D.C. And we also um, reached out to Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton to, to fight for us. And if you understand D.C. politics, um, we are not a state, so we're always, you know, subject to um, to. To Congress, so it was it was a very sort of unique um, kind of place. But other states, uh, I think DC was like the fifth or sixth um, jurisdiction to have marriage equality. But once we saw it happening across the country, we decided that we wanted it as well. And it was an uphill battle, particularly fighting the religious right, mm-hmm. who was uh, uh, of all races, but uh, very um, powerful in DC and very powerful um, in the pulpit. And so that was an issue. And what we did was it was brilliant, in my opinion, is we cast a wide umbrella because um, the laws that were preventing us from from um, getting married or having domestic partnerships or civil unions were also um, keeping um, opposite sex couples Mm. from having those rights. Mm -hmm. And so once we let people understand you're just as affected as we are. And we also got religious people who were affirming to talk to those religious right people because, you know, religious people can speak the same language Mm -hmm. as other religious people. We cannot. Um, It really sort of we watched the dominoes start to fall. And it was uh, even though you're fighting for you just don't think that it's ever going to come. I thought it would come in the lifetime of like my nieces or somebody, you know, further down the line, several generations later. But to see those dominoes fall and to see your work paying off is was it was just sort of um, life altering. And then once we got marriage equality, a lot of couples found that um, 
they were getting married by people who really didn't affirm them, mm-hmm. but they wanted that money. Mm-hmm. And so I went back into, um, I didn't work in D.C. government at the time, but I went to um, the marriage bureau and got um, uh, certified, if you will, as a wedding officiant. Yes. Because so many people yes. wanted to get married by somebody who was affirming them, not just tolerating them and taking a check. So I also married several couples. You know, I um, got married this past August, and the person who married me and my husband here. Now we went to Rome uh, wow. and did a you know a little ceremony there, but we our official license was in our little in Bethesda, mm-hmm. in our living room and our dining room. And the person who married us was an ex boyfriend of mine who's a Lutheran minister. Okay, and it meant something to me because yes. I'm a big I believe in God, and I'm a, and it meant something to me. That a man of God, a gay man of God, mm-hmm. married us. I mean, it meant the world to me. It's a lot. It's very and because so many, um, so many people just were so happy about the, having it. They really didn't really um, care who did the ceremony. But afterwards, they there were a lot of um, there was a lot of regret. And um, I had to become certified as a minister. Mm-hmm. You couldn't just walk in and say, "Hey, I want to marry people." DC. Um, Made you have to align with the religion and come back with all kinds of certifications before it's you. It's like paying a parking ticket in D.C. It's never easy, even a <laughs> so, parking ticket. Yes. So um, you're talking to a D.C. government employee. I, I know. So watch, I got to talk. I got to talk to you about a ticket, but we'll talk later. No. <laughs> I cannot help you. But, I, um, I've been booted not once but twice. Booted. I've been to New York Avenue. It's never only twice. <laughs> only, only. Um, yes. So you're living a good life. Um, <laughs> so what I'm saying is that. Once you get it, there's sort of unintended consequences. Yeah. And one of those things was that we did not, um, we were not prepared for other people to provide um, cakes, to provide the, doing the services, photography, um, tuxes, wedding dresses. So we still had to um, educate the entire sort of um, wedding services community about who we were and what we wanted. And I was a part of that as well. And that was really rewarding. All the time I was doing this, I was not married. I was in a long-term relationship but not married. And so when you're marrying people, they're like, are you married? I'm like, no. Like, well, how can you really marry Mm -hmm. me? And you've never been married. So ultimately, I did get married and and then later divorced. So I would like to tell people that I fought for the right to get married, just like my heterosexual counterparts. And I fought for the right to get divorced, <laughs> just like my heterosexual <laughs> counterpart. And that is true equality or equity. Yes. yes. Because I always say about marriage, gay people deserve the same right to be miserable as straight people. I mean, we, we fought hard for that right, and we, uh, and we enjoy it. And so many people now, um, that it's been like, what, about 10 years, a lot of people still take that for granted. And as you see what's going on in the news if you're thinking about getting married and you're on the cusp, I, I'm going to suggest you go ahead and do it while you still have the right to do it. Uh, Sheila, it's so funny. I roll by as I get married, all this stuff. I'm like, okay, you know, why ruin a great friendship? But I tell you what, the greatest, the greatest day of my life was standing in Rome and looking at my husband and having his mom there and my niece going, oh, my God, how? let's go back 10 years. Let's go back 20 years. Let's go back to um, when – it doesn't have to go back very far. No, I mean it is, know. and and, and it, it tells you sometimes to fight for things, even if you think that you're not going to attain it. Because had we um, been real, uh, you know, thought that um, we'd get it, how would I describe this? It was so far out of reach that we weren't really fighting for ourselves. We we're fighting for the next generation, and then it happened, and then it happened. 
And so I, I often just look back and, and think about if we had let um, the naysayers sort of um, affect us, then we wouldn't be here where we are today. And so that's the lesson that I like to share going forward. If you feel um, adamant about something, um, don't let the naysayers stop you because they have no, they, there's something wrong with their sense of who they are, where they're going. And misery loves company. Don't let it draw you in. Don't let it draw in. Keep pushing forward. Whether you think you're going to get there or not, you have to push forward or you will not get there. It's really easy when you think about it like that. I've noticed, um, and maybe you'll be able to explain why I'm Washington, D.C., because I've noticed that the high hill races that I covered for probably 15 years makes me feel good that in the past I've seen Mayor Fenty there, even before he was mayor, mm-hmm. Mayor Gray, and, and, of course, Mayor Bowser, who now sponsors it. Why is uh, Washington's politicians and leaders um, politically have been supportive of the LGBTQ community? Seems they have been for a while. They have been for a while, but that's a lot of the work that we did back in the 80s and early 90s. And holding, speaking of accountability, holding po- um, politicians accountable. I mean, it starts off with... Um, ANC commissioners that then go on to become um, Ward 4 council members that then go on to become council chair, mayor. I, I think if you've had the community support and you've done the work to get the community support um, at an early level and you rise up, then you take the community with you and the community will support you. But if you started off um, – not being a supporter of the community or not being a supporter of marriage equality, not being a supporter of, I don't know, needle exchange, mm. whatever affects our community, um, then we're not going to support you. And we have a very good memory. So what I'm saying is I think a lot of the today's politicians learned a lesson from politicians from um, from the past and saw that it is in their best interest to support the LGBTQ community. And really, it's in, and it's all of Washington's yeah. best interest because we're a, a part of the community. We are valued. We contribute. We pay taxes. And um, in the Bowser administration, there is a huge um, number of us in her cabinet. So we are really sort of um, heads of a lot of different agencies. So it's, it's amazing um, the growth that we've had. And um, I think that, what makes that's you, wait. Yeah. I think that that's the work that was done in the past because people do, didn't just wake up one one day and suddenly be supportive. It's a lot of education and it's a lot of sort of. Um, I read that even Mayor growth. even Mayor Barry has made appearances there, and I and he was. Um, he was a big he was a big yeah. supporter of the LGBTQ community. He just wasn't a big supporter of marriage equality. Yeah, and so that that um, created a, a kind of a rift. But I believe um, towards the end of his life, that rift was healed. It's just amazing how wonderful the world has become. It is. And I think what happens is we get marriage equality and think that we've arrived and then start resting on our laurels. And I think um, to some extent, that's why we still find ourselves um, back in the fight to to retain those rights we fought for, to retain um, policies and protections for black transgender women of color. We have not arrived. It's always a fight. And the minute you stop and think you've arrived and that you're done, you are done. What are a couple things that our community needs to know? And when I say our community, I also mean, and I know a lot of straight people listen and, and watch, what are things that we need to work on and we need to know this isn't still over? 
Well, I'll tell you this. So I was asked when um, when Mayor Bowser appointed me, I was asked by a Washington Post reporter who I happen to know very well because he worked with me at the Washington City Paper. And he said, Sheila, you've got marriage equality. Um, kind of like, what do you need now? As if to say, you know, do we even need this office of LGBTQ affairs? And and I said to him the same thing I'm saying to you. We need health care. You know, we need housing. We need employment. We need everything that everybody else gets. Marriage equality is kind of like a luxury, yeah. right? And so we need, um, if you're if you're on the margins just trying to survive, you're really not really, um, marriage equality is not going to save you. And so I think that we need to sort of open our eyes and, and center those of us who are, who are still on the margins. And I think the LGBTQ, uh, I think the LGB have it pretty good. And I think we need to focus on the T and the Q. Q can also um, uh, include um, gender nonconforming uh, or they, sometimes gender non-binary because um, they're outwardly don't look, their expression may not be what people expect and the, and or people accept. And same with transgender women and transgender men. And so when we're still sort of like fighting for acceptance, and I'm not even, I'm not even you know, using the word tolerance. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about respect here. I'm not asking you to tolerate me. That, that implies that, mm-hmm. you know, that you have, first of all, have, have um, that there's something wrong with yeah. me. Um, so I'm, I'm talking about we're fighting for respect. And I think it starts with our community first. Those other letters have to understand that you need to um, sort of step up and then step back and then center those of us who are who those not of us, but those who are marginalized, those who are on the margin, those who are still sort of catching hell. And then it sort of spreads to our families, to our neighbors, to our neighbors, neighbors. And everybody sort of understands it that um, the fight for respect is not over. And until all of us have that sort of respect, then none of us are going to have that respect. You see um, people coming for one um, community and then they're silent. And then, oh, there's another community and then they're silent. And then they come after another community. And so don't wait for them to come after you. Mm-hmm. You see, um, when you see a, a, a community or, or ethnicity or, or, or social, um, or sexual orientation or gender identity under attack, you need to respond as if it's you because it is you. It and is if you. it's not you today, it's going to be you tomorrow. Let's go back to you when you were a little girl and you first had that first crush. Mm. What would you tell that little kid now? I would say, Sheila, you know, it's okay. You're going to be okay. And while you may not understand it now, you will understand it later. But love yourself despite that. So when that little girl was, you know, had a crush on somebody who didn't even know, or maybe they know, I don't know, but I, it was never voiced. And so, of course, I'm not going to get that love back, correct? Uh, or not in the, in the way that I want it. So uh, that was a lot of sort of um, shame and a lot of, um, I'm going to say, uh, not self-hatred, but self-doubt. Mm-hmm. And so I need to tell young Sheila that you will be okay. Keep keep moving forward. Have some confidence in who you are and understand that you are valued. And ultimately, you will get the love that you deserve. Who are some of the – did you ever have a celebrity crush growing up? Mm, maybe. 
not growing up, but as an adult, yes. I did have Let's, a crush on Halle Berry. Mm, how could you not? I did. Um, and I'm sure there are probably a couple other, maybe Pam Greer back in the day. I was going to say, Pam Greer, do you ever see Jackie Brown? Of course. One of my, and the, the guy Foxy you, Brown, all Foxy of those Brown. shows. You truly are one of my favorite people. I enjoy you tremendously. You've helped so many people and you continue to do it. Um, I know there's. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Well, I know there's kids who show up in D.C. because they're not welcome in their home and they have nowhere else to go when they come here. And you have helped so many of them have a safe haven. So thank you. Well, it's not me alone. I have a staff that but, does, that does yes. uh, you know, a heavy lift and I have a mayor that supports us. And we have, um, you know, we have uh, D.C. in general as being a very progressive uh, jurisdiction. So uh, that makes it a lot makes our job a lot easier. Um, I'm passionate about this work. Otherwise, it, it, it would be you know stressful or, or or heavy lift. But what I'm what I'm saying is, I feel like I'm blessed and honored and all and sometimes even um, put in this position intentionally for a reason. And so as long as I'm in this position, I'm gonna keep fighting. I'm gonna keep speaking up for those who can't speak up for themselves. Because I think that that's why I'm here. And I appreciate you giving me an opportunity right. to share this on the Doria. radio show. And thank you for having a coming out show. Coming out is so important um, for so many people for so many reasons. And I think that shows like this give people an opportunity to see us as human beings, to value us as human beings, and to respect us as human beings. So thank you, Jimmy. No, thank you. Sheila Alexander-Reed, you're definitely making the world a better place. As director of the Mayor's Office of LGBTQ Affairs here in Washington, D.C. Also, thank you to Julia Ziegler from WTOP for allowing us to use your beautiful studios. And thank you for joining us again this week on Out with Jimmy. Don't forget to go to Apple Podcast or Stitcher and click subscribe so you don't miss any episode of Out with Jimmy. And also follow us on social media, Out with Jimmy or Out with Jimmy Alexander on Instagram. Also, if you want to share your story, go to OutWithJimmy.com. Next week, we're going to hear the story of somebody who is watching and photographing history. That's because the Washington Blades photographer, Michael Kay, will be out with Jimmy.